I mean, feet boy, it's it's like a marriage without sex, so to speak, because you are together all 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 the time. Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Hollis. In this episode, we hear from Kent Brooks, Emeritus Professor at the Geological Museum in Copenhagen, and Bjorn Thomason, Emeritus Senior Scientist at the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland, about the summers of 1970 and 71, working for the Nordic Mining Company in East Greenland, when they discovered Flammefjord, a spectacular red and yellow mountain that hides a buried mineral deposit, still undrilled 50 years later. Well, the Northern Mining Company, although a Danish company, it, uh, its chief geologist was a chap called Erik Hinsteiner, who was an Austrian, and they'd never had any, any real communication with, with Danes at all. All the prospectors they hired came from Austria, and so essentially I was the first, the first one who was non, non-Austrian to take part in it. And um, I had Bjorn Thomas, who was my assistant on that, I was assistant for a British geologist called Kent Brooks. We had two uh, splendid summers, uh, 97 and 1971. And that was fun because, you know, you're a two-person and you get quite close during the two months because you, uh, I mean, feel well, it's, it's like a marriage without sex, so to speak, because you were together all, all, all the time. Normally, uh, Nordisk Minnesgab operated in the area around Mistersvig, but our main assets in that area, that was Melbia, the huge porphyry molly deposits, molybdenum deposits. And that was assured, that is associated with uh, tertiary intrusive rocks. The tertiary, a term that is now subdivided into the Paleogene and Neogene, is a geological time period from 66 to about 2.5 million years ago. Mainly the early part of this period, the Paleogene, saw huge volumes of basaltic lava erupted during rifting of East Greenland from Scandinavia and the opening of the Greenland Sea, and producing the Skergard intrusion, and also the mineralised granites that Bjorn talks about. It's a small granite stock. Uh, which was the molybdenum. So we knew that we had similar rocks 500 kilometers further south at the Kangalusoak, uh, many places in Greenland called Kangalusoak, so we better call it the Skerko area, because Skerko is, among geologists, a well-known locality, because there's a Gaboic intrusion there, beautiful structures layering and things like that. So it's, it's a textbook locality. But there are other tertiary intrusions in the area. It's a big uh, Sinaitic intrusion, same, same rock family as Malbiao, uh, also granite uh, nearby, the same age. So the idea in 1970 was, let's take down there and take a look at those intrusions and see if we can find a Malbiao number two, a new Malbiao deposit. So we flew down, there was a fantastic helicopter from Skorsbjørn to Skærgård uh, along the Blosville coast. It's a very scenic, scenic and in a way frightening because it consists of black basaltic rocks, you know, standing steep out of the water and glaciers in all the valleys. In those days we had an Alouette helicopter 
and its range was, was rather limited, so it had to be used in the first few weeks laying out fuel depots. It was like making a trip to the moon. You, you laid, out, laid out fuel depots along the way, and every fuel depot, the farther away it got, the more, the more expensive it was to put it out, and the smaller it became. And the other day came, we, we uh, flew to Scoresby soon, overnight in Scoresby soon, in the doctor's house, and they had a, they had a, a polar bear cub there as a pet, and I have a, a charming picture of it. Many people, many people have admired. I also have a picture of Hinsteiner sleeping on the sofa in the doctor's room with the polar bear cub licking his face. <laughs> Anyhow, we flew, flew south there, and uh, it was quite a quite a, a risky business in those days. Not many people flew in helicopters in Greenland in those days for a start. And for the other way, we, we weren't, weren't sure whether we had enough fuel laid out to make it or to make it into the, the, the choppers return again. So uh, anyhow, we, we flew, flew, flew down the Blossfield coast fairly uneventfully and landed, landed uh, Skergon. And uh, there were uh, four of us from the Northern Mining Company on this job. A chap called Voritska and his wife, who was also a geologist, and uh, me and Bjorn Thomason. So we were dumped at a place later called uh, Norminibugt uh, at the mouth of the of these huge fjords. So we were told, well, you have provision here for a month and the helicopter will come back in one month and, and shift you over to Skagorn. So we had our tents there and our provisions and a small Elo Digni, two and a half meter long with an outboard motor, which uh, was no success. No success because there was too much ice in the water. So we were actually restricted to that area, which is quite mountainous. The highest mountain of uh, Greenland, Gunnbjörnfjell, is just 50 kilometers uh, northeast of locality. It's a, it's a high country. But anyway, we did our best, uh, covered that area. And the thing you do when, when you are bound, when you are no helicopter, no support, you operate out of the base as long as you can reach in a day, which is normally five kilometers and that sort of terrain. If you want to go further, you have to carry a lightweight camp out and operate from that. And we did that. And one camp we had over the next fjord called, called Emdorfjord. And I remember we were working, Kent and I, along the coast of Emdorfjord. Beautiful place, by the way. You can say Greenland is beautiful all over, but some places are more beautiful than others. And this is a more beautiful place. Well, the first thing we found was uh, what we called Yellow Mountain in those days. When we climbed up to the top of the ridge above our camp, we saw this striking mountain across the fjord, which was all red and yellow. And it was really a spectacular looking thing. Very impressive. And the stream was coming up from a small valley there, and it was absolutely yellow. The whole top of that mountain is covered in, in rust, which rust is a popular name of uh, alteration of iron bearing uh, minerals. And we had no helicopter, so we couldn't reach it. It turned out, turned out subsequently that it's a porphyry molybdenum deposit. But we didn't find that out until uh, later, anyhow. And uh, one of the one of the uh, two the two molybdenum deposits in East Green that I, I dated using the rhenium osmium method, which uh, gave really accurate dates for for uh, for these things. I dated Flemmerfjell in Kangatungsvak and Malmbjau up by Messersvik, the other big molybdenum deposit. And we got really accurate dates on them. Anyhow, that was essentially that was the only only 
promising mineral deposit. We found the whole summer. We found it the day after we first arrived. <laughs> and then we spent the rest of the summer wandering around looking for more, but didn't find any. But then the following year, the Northern Mining Company decided they were going to have a much more ambitious expedition there. So they um, took on, I think, four or five groups, five groups maybe it was. Bjorn Tomas and I were one of them, and uh, then the, the others were Austrians. There was Kurt Voritschka and his wife again, and there were, there were two other groups called uh, the Hokarpina Kupa. They were... Uh, they were uh, selected because they were good climbers. But next year we came back with a helicopter and made a landing and uh, had a look at the rocks and they were porphyries. Granitic, porphyritic, granitic rock. A porphyry is a kind of igneous rock, usually formed along the margins of continents, that is prospective for certain types of mineralization, including copper, gold, silver, molybdenum and tin. And that was what we were looking for. And we found some sulfites, but not the right, you know, uh, porphyry type of molybdenite deposits. The, the, the molybdenum mineral molybdenite sulfite sitting on cracks, on tiny cracks, but the whole rock is like it's crushed up. So it's a three-dimensional uh, meshwork, we call it stopwork, of a very large size. And we are talking of tonnages of over 100 million tons. I mean, Melbjerg. Depending on, on the cut-off grades, it's either 100 million tons uh, or 200 million tons. So it's dying out slowly in all directions. So of course, uh, the high-grade core where you will always start the mining. We didn't find that sort of mineralization. That summer we found other general base metal and with uh, high silver concentrations of gold and things like that. Also molly, but wrong structure, more massive molybdenum. The main result of this particular ex- uh, expedition as far as I was concerned, was that the, uh, we discovered two very important intrusions in Kagetluxrak, which we knew nothing about before. One of them was a gardener intrusion, which uh, is a paleogene intrusion again, and it's uh, extremely interesting because it's, uh, it's really a, mi- a, min- a mineral treasure trove. There are lots of wonderful uh, museum-quality spe- museum min- minerals there, including perovskites, magnetite, uh, eudiolite, apatite, bariolamprophilite, and it's just, a, it's just a mineral treasure trove, and it's uh, 10 or 20 kilometres beyond the head of Kangatuxvac Fjord on the west side, and it turns out to be a hellhole because it verges onto the inland ice, and the, the, wind, the wind blows at gale force most of the time, and the original, the original two, two people on Nordmine who discovered it, they uh, quickly had the tent blown to pieces, and they had to send a helicopter to a Pudatek to get, get uh, balks of timber so they could, they could shore up the tent with heavy timber and stop it being blown away. Well, we've been back to garden on several occasions, and uh, we, we've, we've always had these winds. They come off the inland's ice down there and, uh, almost incessantly, and it makes life in, life intolerable. I mean, the wind is so strong you could you, you have to lean into it, or you fear being blown away a lot of the time. Anyhow, that's the gardener intrusion. On the other side of the fjord is uh, the Batbjau intrusion or the Batbjau complex, and that turned out to be a Caledonian intrusion. The Caledonian orogeny or continental collision, occurred about 420 million years ago, 
and during this period many what are called Caledonian magmatic intrusions were formed. But it's also alkaline rocks and it's, uh, it's incredibly interesting because it has these, uh, these lucite-bearing rocks in it. Lucite is a, a relatively uh, rare mineral. It only occurs in certain, certain igneous rocks in a few parts of the world, like Italy and the African Rift Valley. And uh, anyhow, these rocks contain lucite and uh, related minerals. And so it's pretty unusual, and it remains to this day quite a mystery as to what it's doing there. But one of the theories is that the uh, the Batbear intrusion is related to the the Assin province in northwest Scotland, which has been detached from it by continental continental drift. Anyhow, we uh, we uh, discovered discovered those two things that year. That was 1971. 1972, I decided that. Uh, as Nord, Nord Mine wasn't going back again, I decided if I wanted to go back, I'd have to, have to do it myself. Later, Kent, he did a visit to that mountain with more time, and he found uh, blocks with that stockwork type of mineralization. That was 1981. And he told me, and we decided it was in a decision-making part in, in, uh, in North Mine at that time. So we decided to take a license over the mountain, Red Mountain. And so we had a field season in 1982 for us, two geologists, two assistants. And we were put in with a helicopter from Angmasalik and uh, taken out a month later. So we were put in same way with provisions and everything. So we spent that month mapping out and sampling in detail the Red Mountain. First, we're sitting there and said, Red Mountain, it won't do because there are so many Red Mountains in the world, also in the world of economic geology. So we will dream up a better, better name and we invented the, the Flammefield or Flame Mountain for several reasons. First, it is fantastic color when you look at it and the sun is shining it's it's a red and a yellow all over because of the hydrothermal alteration products and secondly it's nearly the same word in danish and english i mean in, in english because when you published that's uh, an, an, a world where everybody writes and, and speaks english because our market at the international uh, community and uh, we try to attract capital. Even as a small Danish company, if we were to go into mining, we have to have expertise and uh, capital from abroad. So everything goes in English. So we think Flammefjell is a Danish word, but it's, I think Englishmen will understand it. It's nearly the same. So we're proud of that name. So now it's called Flammefjell. And then we did a detail and my friend Eska Gaiti had been working with Porphyrys up together with with Amex, who had a license in Central East Greenland, and they had checked up on all the territory intrusions up there and checked them for Porphyry copper uh, uh, molly. And see they are uh, forming models for this type of mineralization came out very early, I think, in the 50s, where, where the Americans uh, put out this uh, climax model which uh, describe a small granite stock uh, with several porphyric phases, that mean multiple intrusive phases. And so at the top of this uh, small stock, we had a saucer shape, inverted saucer shape, or body. Yeah, well, as I said, 100, 200 million tons. With. The grade is not high, it's about a quarter percent uh, molybdenum uh, sulfide. 
So that was our target, and we used the methods we had learned up in Central East Greenland, and that we took detailed chip sampling and analyzed them for a host of critical elements afterwards and did our contouring. And we found out that the mountain contains a pressure pipe, a volcanic pressure pipe. A volcanic breccia pipe is the explosive centre of a volcano where rocks have been blasted up through the earth to the surface, leaving behind a pipe full of broken rocky material. Fragments in that pressure consisted of granite with stockwork type porphyry mineralization. So the model is that we had a porphyry climax type deposits at 500 meters below the peak. The peak is 1,000 meters. So 500 meters above sea level, that should be this inverted saucer shape or body. And then the, the volcanic pipe had blasted through and picked up blocks of, of the body mineralization and they were sitting now in, in the crater. But we could calculate that only a quarter of the ore body had been destroyed by the pipe. So the rest was down there, but it's blind. A blind mineral deposit is one that is completely buried could see the surface. We could do the contouring because this type of mineralization is characterized by shells, like in an onion of uh, alteration products, potassium feldspar. And uh, another zone is a zone of puritization. And then in that way, you can build up several zones. And it's very elegant uh, model because when you have the, all the shells, you know, in the middle of the system, you have the ore. So you can just Based on your contoured map, you can design your drilling program and be quite sure to, to hit the ore, even if it's blind. So we did that and came home. We were very proud and proposed a drilling program. Two boreholes should confirm the, the blind, the blind uh, ore body, and very important, also the grade, because problem with, with molybdenum is the mark is it's not so good. Most molybdenum come from, from copper porphyry as a byproduct. So the few pure molybdenum producers and the few. So it's only the, the uh, molybdenum, pure molybdenum porphyry with the highest grades which will go into production. So it's, it was very important to get a drill core through and estimate production. We had good evidence from, uh, from floats. Floats are pieces of rock at the surface that have been moved from their original location by gravity, water, wind or ice. So the geologist no longer knows exactly where they came from and uh, pressure fragments of uh, high-grade molly. Anyway, that was the summer. So we came home after a month's work and very proud and happy. And uh, now we're going to drill for the thing. And then in the autumn, the mining company stopped exploration and we were all sacked. But it's still there. And later on, I was uh, many years later, uh, 10 years ago, I was uh, hired by another junior company called Avana uh, Resources. I was about to retire. I was uh, 67, 2009. I simply couldn't resist. There was so challenging. And I remember with the interview, most of the time we were talking about this deposit, uh, Flammerfield, and they were very eager to get engaged in it. And they knew it was going to be drills. So the first field season in uh, 2010, I organized uh, four of us uh, coming down to Flammerfield and we put out a camp and we had hired an American expert. And so we investigated and came up and, and he, he said, you know, this is a part of a big system. There might be 10. Those, uh, those types, they all often come up in because there are several intrusive phases with several ore bodies. Of course, it should be drilled because uh, we have nothing on surface about 
apart from the British fragments. So we were too high, too high level. So everything sounded good, but um, then somebody in the the board of directors of Havana said, forget about it. And the thinking was, when Melbier up, Central East, which had been drilled and everything, it was not economic feasible. That thing down there wouldn't be neither. Uh, and you cannot set that beforehand, because we had no new data. What we should have at Flamfield was a higher grade system. But we have got confirmed by this American uh, expert, John Dillis, that it's a big porphyry moly system. So when People ask me, we have an impression uh, in economic geology called world-class deposits. That means they're big. And I'm sure it's going to be drilled one day and what is going to come in production, I don't know. I'd look forward to a drill core just to see if our original model from uh, 1982 was confirmed or not. And that's, by the way, one of my few uh, scientific uh, papers uh, together with Eska, that was about Flammerfield. We got it out in Economic uh, Geology, American Magazine, which have been very keen also on porphyry type mineralization. So it's, it's laying there, we gave it a name, we gave it the first description, and now apparently later generations will have to, to do the drilling. I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode, we hear more from Emeritus Senior Scientist Niels Henriksen about geological mapping in remote and inaccessible North Greenland in the 1970s.